Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to Condensed Histories, the podcast that takes pop culture and reveals the real history underneath. I'm your host, Jem Daduchu, and what we're doing this time round is the history of comics, which means we're going to go back further than you probably think to a continent that, when you think about it, makes complete sense, but is not the first thing you think of. Because this was actually a recommendation by one of my followers on Twitter. Shout out to you, at Morangles. You have been following me for a very long time. I think we first actually started communicating on the Facebook page. So she knows I'm really into my history and she bounces ideas one way or another and she's French. Bonjour, mon ami, comment ça va? And she made an interesting comment to me on Twitter about the difference between the way French comics are treated in the world of cinema comparative to the American ones. And she's absolutely right. And it just, it got my brain firing. And it's not quite what you asked for, but hopefully you will enjoy this nonetheless. So let's get down into it. What is a comic? That's actually slightly more of a harder conversation than you might first think, because after all, if you're going to say, well, it's images with with words, we all have seen the pictograms, the hieroglyphs next to these exquisite images on the walls of tombs from ancient Egypt. I can read and write ancient Egyptian, and I can, I can decipher hieroglyphics and heretic. But does anybody really consider that a comic book? Fast-forwarding thousands of years, we could get to something like the Bayer Tapestry. Now, I am under no illusion the reason why the Battle of Hastings has been so well remembered compared to so many other battles of that era. Yes, it's important in terms of the foundation of a new royal family in England and a change to some of the society as well. But it would be extraordinarily dry, like the Battle of Bosworth Field or the Siege of Antioch from the Crusades. Nobody would have remembered it, but we're quite visual creatures. And the fact that there was this whole thing, an embroidery, not a tapestry, created of this battle, showing some of the pivotal moments leading up to the battle, the reason why. Yes, of course, it's completely biased towards the Norman point of view, but now we've got something to show children about this was an old battle that you should care about. That's much more interesting than just reading a few chapters in a history book. Is the Bayer Tapestry a comic book? You've got, again, images with words explaining what's perhaps happening in a certain scene. One of the few comics in Latin, if it is. No, 
No, we don't consider it a comic book, but it is very similar. I mean, it's an ongoing story, frame by frame. We see what happens next in the story. There is no practical difference between that and a comic book. Instead, we actually need to go to now. Look, I know that I usually start with the pop culture and then go into the history, but this way round, I'm actually taking you not so much the other way, but let's take these stops as we go along because hopefully you'll find this. Really interesting. I hope I get it. So we need to go to Japan, and when I say Japan, you instantly your mind will hopefully fill with things like anime and manga. More on the differences between those two in a bit. And yeah, absolutely, this is the place to go. And going back to the ancient Egyptians, the, the fact of the matter is the hieroglyphs were an alphabet. There weren't thousands and thousands of different characters. For the ancient Egyptian language, however, if you've got pictograms, think Chinese or think Japanese. Japanese is wonderfully complex. It actually does have an alphabet. It's got three different ways that you can write down the language of Japanese. It is considered one of the most complex and hardest to learn languages, because here's the thing: you have all the pictograms, which are similar in scope and and. Layout to the Chinese ones. Then there's an entirely different group of pictograms for words that have come from other languages. So, for example, samurai would be written in the first one, whereas there's a second one completely different. If we were going to write down computer, because that didn't come from Japan, and there's a third group which is more like an alphabet. And if you're Japanese, you know which one to use. But if you're not, you're going to have to learn a huge amount of history and culture, as well as the basic rules of Japanese. Now, look, please, I'm not turning around saying English is best. It's not as phonetic as other languages like Turkish or French, for example. However, and also the other thing is, it pretty much breaks all its own basic rules. But even English, I mean, the good news: there are only a couple of dozen of characters that you have to learn, and once you know how they're pronounced, yeah, you can occasionally get things wrong. I mean, you've got to feel sorry for people that cough, c o u g h, and then you've got the town of Slough, s l o u g h. How would you know to say off for one and ow for the other? You just gotta. Really annoying. I get that, but English is an easier language to learn by comparison than Japanese. But people say that if you want a really obvious, never breaks its rules language, then something like a Romance language, like French and Spanish, or indeed German. But <laughs> German doesn't seem to be that popular around the world, mainly because of the imperial background of all these countries. There are more people around the world speaking French and, well, particularly Spanish than German. George, the British Empire at present covers a quarter of the globe, while the German Empire consists of a small sausage factory in Tanganyika. <laughs> so, if you're going to learn another language, I would say probably if you can speak Arabic, Spanish, and English, you can't go everywhere, but you've covered a lot of the world with just those three languages. Anyway, anyway, the point is that when you have all these pictograms rather than an alphabet. Well, a lot of these little symbols already kind of look like pictures, and therefore there isn't as much of a disconnect between the written word and an image of what's going on in this particular scene. So, in Japan, there's just been more 
culture of having an image where Japanese is written kind of around the central image. Like you might get a picture of a samurai, and there'll be various words literally in the middle of the picture, perhaps under his arm, and then wedged in by a mountain in the background. So it's almost like the words are in the picture. Whereas by comparison, if you look at something like medieval manuscripts. In the middle, there's all the words, and the words aren't being interfered with by all the images. The images are all around the edges on the borders, all those beautiful illuminations. So there's already a bit of a cultural difference going on there between the West with their alphabets and Japan with their pictograms. And so we come to things called kibiyoshis. So this is in the late 1700s. We're in sort of like the 1770s. And it seems that the first example that we we still have an extant copy of is from 1775. So that's when the American War of Independence started. That's not when you might think that we can start talking about comics. These were printed. They were usually about ten pages long, and they were, as I've just described, they were ongoing pictures of a story. Most of them were like courtly love or battles or do with samurai, etc. Those were very popular topics. And there were the words kind of within the image as well. Do you call that a comic or not? I don't know. But this was meant to be consumed by the general public. This was not high art. It was not written in haikus, for example. It was exactly what a comic was meant to be. This is going to thrill and entertain to a mass audience. So we don't have speech bubbles there, but everything else is in place and it again it wasn't considered high art we'll definitely be coming back to that in a little bit as well that's not art so if that's what's going on in japan meanwhile america is way too busy fighting for its independence and should we win the day the 4th of july will no longer be known as an american holiday to be creating anything like that and then afterwards they got a country to set up so America isn't really in the conversation at this point. However, let's move to Europe, and we have a French-speaking Swiss man called Rodolf Topfer. If you don't know, Switzerland is one of these countries which sort of is intersected by lots of different cultures. So there are people who speak German, Italian. They're sort of kind of their own version of German with the Swiss language, and also French as well. They're all very commonly spoken, depending where you are within Switzerland. It's all quite segregated because of all the big mountains and stuff. So anyway, Rodolphe had a very shiny nose. Right, stop that, silly. Rodolphe was actually a French speaker and therefore created these comic books, which were for French speakers. And this is where we get into the French element because if we're going to talk about the longest period of comic book history, it comes from France and Belgium rather than from. The United States of America. Now, going back to very briefly the Kibiyoshis, they kind of were a popular thing for about fifty years in the height of the Edo period. So this is the period where you've got the Tokugawa shogunate. The shoguns were invented in sixteen hundred by the big granddaddy of this family called Iesu Tokugawa. Hence, why they're the Tokugawa shogunate. They're all from the same family of Gawa, and this all collapsed. I've mentioned this before in my previous episode about samurai in the 1860s, where we get the Meiji Restoration. More on that. Listen to the other episode, okay? But towards the end of this era, for about 50 years, the kibiyoshis were very popular. However, they didn't exactly last. 
And so it kind of fades away. And again, they've got their civil war to worry about and things like that. So they've got their own problems rather than just manufacturing all this stuff. What's interesting is if you look at something like Punch magazine from, let's say, 1800, this was a satirical magazine in England where there were quite often images of like the royals being fat and indolent or Napoleon being incredibly short, barely popping out of his boots. And a lot of these pictures, which are very useful for historians, because this is what people generally thought of at the time. And again, because it's visual, you can show kids or people doing GCSE history and saying, look, you know, here's something to actually entertain you a little bit rather than just lots of dry text. And they've all got speech bubbles coming out of their mouths. They hadn't really quite worked or mastered the rules around speech bubbles, because sometimes it's like a paragraph of information. So it's almost like half the image is the speech bubble, which isn't very pleasing. People like Stan Lee made the rule of, like, you should never have more than 200 words on an entire page. That's split between all the different cells of the comic book. And he occasionally broke it because he knew when to break the rules because he was a bit of a master at this stuff. You know, I guess one person can make a difference. So what's interesting is, whereas in 1800 the speech bubble was very prevalent rather than having text underneath it, what Rodolf Topfer did is he had, in essence, a comic book. It's exactly what a comic book was. You've got different cells of different things happening. The story progresses through images. But... There's no actual words in the image. There's a little bit at the bottom which gives you a sentence of information. Think of things like the little boards that flash up in silent movies. You could argue that they were perhaps influenced by this rather than by speech bubble type stuff. So, Rodolf Topfer, 1840s. And this is kind of where it went for a while. If you were in the 1880s in America, you wouldn't be reading some form of comic book then. The thing was all about these sort of, well, in Britain they were called penny dreadfuls, but these very cheap, pulped, pulpy books that were full of lurid stories about the Wild West, in inverted commas. And those were extremely popular. Literacy throughout the industrialized world, throughout the 19th century, was rapidly growing. You wouldn't have been at even 40% in 1800, but by 1899, we're suddenly talking about so 70-80% of the population being literate, so people could read books, but they weren't going to read necessarily Shakespeare. What they were going to be reading is these sort of kind of basically written books, but full of exciting stories and adventures. However, the comic book returned with the mass production of all these newspapers. Industrialized printing presses could churn out the books, but they could also churn out the newspapers. And so we started having these very short-form comics, which in every possible way, comic strips, this is why they're called strips, it's like literally four or five cells, four or five scenes, and then end. Think of your typical Garfield from the 1980s. That format was from the late 19th century onwards and was popular throughout the whole of Western Europe and also on into America. It's really only when we get into the very beginning of the 20th century that we start having kind of dedicated comic books with the speech bubbles and everything. But this is not going to start with America. Let's talk about some brands that, okay, may not be as big as the MCU or DC, but you've definitely heard of them. In 1929, we get the first appearance of Tintin. Hi, I'm Tintin, reporter. Which I believe in Belgium is pronounced Tantan, 
which just sounds wrong to me, okay? But Tintin is somebody who got turned into a motion caption movie directed by Steven Spielberg, produced by Peter Jackson. The model ship conceals a clue to one of the greatest secrets in all history. That's how big Tintin is still to this day. What's interesting, though, is that movie didn't quite work. It had a problem with the Uncanny Valley. Is it animated? Is it real life? It's kind of hard to work out. And it, it kind of fell between two stools. And while everybody put their best efforts into it, it didn't quite work. But it's an example of where Hollywood is trying to pick up a European superhero and run with it. So that's 1929. The weird thing about Tintin, particularly to the modern reader, and yes, there are some problematic depictions of like African natives and things like that in, in the book. Got to consider when it was actually being made. But as a child, I remember reading Tintin and thinking, how old is he? He's clearly young. I mean, he's not eight years old. He's not a child child. But there are times when he's driving and he's actually got a gun, which is very rare for a superhero. You know, outright, we're talking about a Browning 1911, you know, your classic semi-automatic handgun, which was very popular in the first half of the 20th century. And yeah, that's not what you expect in a comic book. There were shootouts and things like that. So this is all pretty radical and action-packed. It wasn't full of philosophy. You might think, oh, you know, the Belgians maybe, you know, the French maybe Nimi's just sort of dripping with the savoir-faire and everything else. Like, no, it was action and adventure. It was similar to these kind of Saturday morning matinee shows that you get when you went to the movies. There was the main movie everybody went to see, but before that there was like the Pathé newsreel, and there would be something for the kids, something like Buck Rogers or Flash Gordon. Now, Flash Gordon started off as a comic book. But in the 1930s, he got turned into one of these serialized Saturday matinee things, which I saw repeated as a kid on TV back in the 80s. And as a small child, I didn't mind the special effects were a bit hokey. I think if you watched it now, you go, good Lord. But what's interesting is all you have to do is see the opening of a Flash Gordon episode and you realize where the opening crawl for Star Wars came from. Clearly. And, and this is the thing. Both. Spielberg and George Lucas have been very open about their influence of these kind of 30s matinee type things. That was the inspiration behind Raiders of the Lost Ark. That belongs in a museum! And that was the inspiration behind Star Wars in terms of the way it was presented. Other things influenced as well. But I will never forget, when I was watching it as a little kid, is we were watching it every night. Every weeknight on BBC Two, uh, sort of around about tea time, dinner time. So it's like, I don't know, 5.30 and it went, went on for about 25 minutes. And I watched it regularly, but we were watching it every day of the week. Whereas in the cinemas, back when it was being shown in the 1930s, it was coming out every week. So you had a week's gap between them. And so I will never forget an episode where Flash Gordon's sidekick, can't remember his name, he is about to jump out the window in a rocket pack on, but the baddie shoots him in the back and he kind of staggers and, and, and falls over. And it's like, oh, my God, he's been killed. This is this is momentous. What's going to happen next episode? It ends on a cliffhanger. This is the thing that each one would end in a cliffhanger. And so the next day, imagine my disappointment as it starts up again 
and you get exactly the same scene. Only this time round, the bad guy misses, and he just jumps out the window and uses his jetpack to goes to safety. That's cheating. What a swizz! Now I know that things like that happened in the thirties, and kids sat there and went. No, I feel cheated, but it's even worse when you've got only twenty-four hour gap between them. So anyway, we got Flash Gordon, who was all these sorts of people were popping up in newspapers. Sometimes they were being compiled into an actual comic book, but the point here was it was a way to entertain the kids. And indeed, sometimes you'd get just dedicated comics in the Sunday newspapers, which was referred to as the funny. So in other words. Dad would sit there and read the news or the sport. Mum would sit there and read the kind of culture and lifestyle. So I'm I'm being sexist here, but look, we're talking about the 1930s, all right? And then the kids would be handed the funnies, and so everybody in the family gets to enjoy a bit of the Sunday newspapers. And I remember that myself as a child as well before the whole internet thing. So Tintin, 29. Then. Let's go to Britain, shall we? To specifically to Scotland and the invention of the dandy that came out in 1937. This is a comic book that is still going today in the 21st century. It came out in 37. Its sister publication, The Beano, came out in 38. But first things first. So the dandy came out in 37. Why am I keep banging on about that? Because Action Comics number one. What's the importance of that thing? Well, that's the First showing of this comic book character you might have heard of called Look up in the sky, it's a bird. It's a plane. It's Superman comes out in 1938. Now, to be fair, the Phantom had come out a couple of years earlier in 36. So this is the first what's considered to be superhero. Again, the Phantom still exists today, and pretty much everything's there. He sort of has some special powers. He's able to sort of. Kind of talk to the animals. Think Doctor Doolittle, but cooler. He had his own secret lair. He had his own secret abilities. He did also, again, like Tintin, have two Browning 1911s that he would fire off at people. And and so yeah, you've got the whole basics of what is a superhero secret identity, different outfits and powers, etc. With the Phantom, he's the first superhero. But let's face it. Superman's where we we should really start the conversation, but Superman by no means was the first comic book. I've already mentioned all these other things that had already existed for quite some time. We then get this little thing that's going to cause a wrinkle in in production of comic books called World War Two. I have to tell you now that no such undertaking has been received, and that consequently, this country is at war with Germany. Just a brief sidebar: comics were produced in America during the war in limited numbers because there was basically some shortages even in America for certain things. But that's when Captain America was invented. The first Captain America movie, sort of showing how he sort of basically a patriot and how his shield is is in essence the a version of the American flag, and how they sort of he's punched Hitler on stage. That bit never happened, but that was the front cover of a real Captain America comic book because American GIs like their comic books. Now they're fighting for their lives across Europe, so of course they're going to read some exciting stuff about Captain America. So he was not created by Stanley and Jack Kirby, but actually by other people, and he got folded into what eventually became Marvel Marvel Comics much later. 
I think we're now into comic book territory. After the war, the first country to really. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile unlimited premium wireless. Ready to get 30 30, ready get 30, ready get 20 20, 20 ready get 20 20, ready get 15 15, 15 15 just 15 bucks a month. So, give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch. $45 up front for 3 months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner 3 days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, Hello Fresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at hellofresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for, but you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Embrace comics big time was Japan. So this is where we get to manga and anime. And the thing is, again, as I go back to the earlier things, the Kobayashi, and also the fact that they've got the pictograms, is that whereas everything I've been mentioning about America and Europe, it's all been kind of kid-friendly, in Japan, after World War II, there was everything. You wanted something with, like, big, powerful robots that was like a power fantasy for children. That existed. But there were literally kind of, well, in Britain we call them Mills and Boone, these kind of very soppy romance stories. There were basically Japanese comic book versions of those, aimed at basically young women, but women, not girls. And... There were cookery ones. Later on, I love this, literally you could get the stock market information in comic book form. There were, how can I put this politely, naughty ones. There were horror ones. There were sci-fi. There was historical ones. So basically, the breadth of manga, that is the written comic book versions, were so much broader than anything in Western Europe. 
a businessman married with two kids could be seen on their commute sitting there reading a comic book and nobody would be offended by this. Nobody would think, he's reading a comic. They would think it's completely fine, completely normal. Even if it was one of the naughty ones, it was just polite to sort of not look too much, which was weird and does not translate to the Western world, okay? Japan was kind of doing its own thing. And because they were producing so many of these things, they were traditionally black and white. And like with the actual written Japanese, they read from right to left. We read from left to right. So if you ever do get a compilation of Japanese artwork, don't forget to, from your perspective, go to the back of the book and start working your way forwards. Otherwise, it will make no sense whatsoever. Also, because they were produced in such high quantity, Japan was very badly damaged from World War II. And just for sheer speed, they basically were and still are mainly produced in black and white. There is an argument that some of these great inking artists don't want their beautiful artwork and incredibly rapidly produced artwork distracted with color. But also there's an element of just it's cheaper and also it's quicker. So, yeah, there's the practicality to be taken into account there. But a lot of these were being turned into animes as early as the 1950s and 60s. What do I mean by that? We're now into cartoons, but cartoons based on these things. This was already causing problems in America in the 1960s and in Europe because some of these animes were based on quite adult themes, which there's no way little Jimmy in Albuquerque was going to, you know, th their parents would be horrified if he was to see blood or guns and things like that. Oh, won't somebody please think of the children? So these things were edited and rejigged and it just there's a whole other story there about that. So that's in the, the 1950s. But hey, I'm not done with the 1950s yet and I'm still going to stay out of America because now I am going to go to 1959 and a creation of one of my favorite comic book characters well char yeah, characters plural asterix and obelix it is an historical fact that caesar had a lot of gall but he did not have it all one little region held out a fortified village and it is in this village that we shall meet the hero of our tale the mighty warrior asterix so if you don't know who these guys are, first of all, boy, are there some great things for you to read out there. So Asterix and Obelix are Celts in Gaul round about 50 BC. And as we all know from our history, Julius Caesar conquered Gaul by about 50 BC. And that's fine, except that in this story, there's one tiny little village that has resisted all kinds of Roman advances and this is where the brave Gauls live, and two of them are called Asterix and, the, and his best friend, Obelix. Now, I've heard Obelix referred to as Obelix, but I, all I can say is in the English language, it's a play on obelisk, because he walks around with these minnows on his back. He's basically carrying around stone statues or stone structures on his back. He's that strong, and so we call that an obelisk, and therefore I'm going to call him Obelix. The amazing thing about Asterix is it was all written in French, and yet it's funny. And if they were to translate it literally word for word into English, none of the jokes would land. But they got such good translators 
that they were able to take these sometimes visual gags, which were also playing on things like French play on words, and coming up with a similar joke that makes sense to an English speaker or indeed a Spanish speaker. It was an amazing bit of regionalization, and just ten out of ten to to them. Now the two geniuses behind it are Uduzo and Goshini. I might be pronouncing that wrong, but that's the way I've always pronounced it. Sorry about that. Here's the thing: I could go on and on about Asterix, and I don't know if I should be doing an extra episode on Asterix at some point. So I'm going to say a little bit about its history with movies because that's kind of the underlying point of this episode. So I will be saying that now. But come on, you can reach me on at Jim Deducci on Twitter. Tell me, do you want an actual episode on Asterix? I'm just just going to tell you right now, at Morangles, if it's just you. I need more than you. I need to know: is this going to be an, a successful, interesting episode, or is this just going to entertain you? In which case, I might as well get your phone number and call you and tell you about it. But so, yeah, let me guys, let me know. As always, if you can click subscribe, if you can give us a review, that really helps. Thank you very much. And hey, look, the other thing that can help grow the podcast is. Ask a friend. Just you know, say, "Hey, do you like history?、Yeah, I like history. Well, I think you'll like this podcast. Give me your phone. Open your phone with your face. And now I'm going to go onto the podcast app, and I'm going to get you to subscribe to Condensed Histories. That would be really useful if you could tell an actual other human being. Please feel free to retweet my stuff on Twitter or. Spread the love on Instagram or, or Facebook or wherever. That all helps too, but it also really helps to actually tell an actual other fellow human being. And yeah, tell me about if you want an Asterix episode. But here's the thing: so Asterix has been around for a long old time. One of the earlier Asterixes is each one. There's a different situation. It's like Asterix and the Magic Cauldron, or Asterix and Cleopatra, or Asterix and the Vikings. There are some problems here if you know about the time of the Vikings and the time of the Celts. But anyway, the great thing was that with the Asterix and Cleopatra, they were very much playing off the movie, the Hollywood movie of Cleopatra. And I remember that the joke on the front cover was because it was one of the most expensive movies ever made for various issues there. But with this, we're starring Elizabeth Taylor as Cleopatra, which nowadays wouldn't play very well. Why have you got a very white English woman? Playing somebody from Egypt, but hey ho, let's move on. But the way that they they riffed off it was like talking about the cost of making this comic book. Going, ah, this took us five pencils and three erasers. It's a good gag, but it was, shows you how contemporary it was, riffing off its own pop culture at the time, and it was interested in movies. And I've seen a couple of Asterix animated movies, and I know there was a live action movie where Gerard Depardieu was playing Obelix. So they exist. They haven't done nearly, even close to as well as even a basic animated movie from DC. So there is an Asterix world, like a theme park. You know, Disneyland. There is an equivalent of that in France. You could go there today if you wanted to, but it just hasn't caught the populist imagination. I guess I loved these things when I was between the ages of, let's say, eight and eleven, but I kind of then forgotten about them. And so, yeah, this is another example where we've got an intellectual property that was created before all the famous MCU ones, and yet today, even though there's no no reason why if you do an animated, you can't just have an English dub on it, that'd be fine, you know. Have Brad Pitt do the voice of Asterix, okay? Kevin Hart is the voice of、o、Obelix. I don't know. So 
the point is Asterix, big brand, very well-established brand, doesn't do the box office, isn't in the popular conversation. When was the last time you saw a YouTube video and like 10 things you didn't know about Asterix and Obelix? That's, that's just not a thing that YouTubers would create because they know it's not going to get them enough hits. So that's the 50s. And now we come into the 60s. And the 60s is where we get the Silver Age of comics. Golden Age, by the way, is the sort of like 1930s, where we get the invention of Superman, Batman. The thing about these metallic ages is because it's all seen from the lens of American comics. But the Silver Age, the 50s did see a decline in comic consumption in America, but here we are in other places in the world where they're just devouring them. But in the 60s, it all pick up. And this is prime Jack Kirby and... The man himself, Stan Lee. Uh, invitation, sir. Um, I should be on that list. Name? Stan Lee. Yeah, uh, nice try, buddy. No, nice no, try. really, nice I'm try. Stan Lee. Yeah. Uh, this is where they're creating things like The Hulk and Iron Man and the Fantastic Four and later on The Avengers and so on and so forth. And, of course, the biggest one, Spider-Man. So this is all big in the 60s. But again, let's go to France and see what's happening in France in the 60s, shall we? Well, we've got an incredibly popular comic book series called Valerian and Loreline, And that started in 1967, a little bit later, but still at the peak of superhero fever in America. We've got this amazing sci-fi series that lasted decades. So, of course... This should be turned into a movie. And it was turned into a movie by Luc Besson, who is an amazing French director. Don't believe me? There's La Femme Nikita. There's Leon. There's The Fifth Element. So he's done stuff in English. He's done stuff in French. He really is a visual wizard. He can certainly do action. Just go and watch Leon again. And so he spent a lot of money. I think it was $200 million dollars equivalent and he got this all from like private equity and sort of his own funding this was not launched through something like warner brothers or universal or disney and he created valerian and the city of a thousand planets that came out in 2017 welcome to alpha the city of a thousand planets just in time to celebrate the 50th anniversary of valerian launching as a comic book and in 2017 it was one of the biggest flops out there. Now, I've watched it, and I think the problem is that, you know, we've been trained to watch these things like they should be a Star Wars movie or they should be an MCU movie, and it's very much its own thing. I think there is a problem that the, there is zero chemistry between Valerian and Loreline, but it's an interesting, slightly weird movie. Think something like The Fifth Element. Clearly, he was influenced by making The Fifth Element by the the various comics that he grew up with, including Valerian and the other great just genius. You, you've got Stan Lee in America, but in France, you've got Jean-Henri Gaston Giraud, better known to everybody as Mobius, who's still alive, by the way. And he is just, like I say, French language comic book genius. One of the classics that he created in the 70s was Arzak, which was translated to heavy metal, which was even turned into an animated movie in, in the English language. 
So he created his own version of a Silver Surfer, and there was lots of arguments between Mobius' Silver Surfer and the MCU, well, the Marvel version of Silver Surfer. There have been various arguments about intellectual property rights over the years between various comic book companies. Like, for example, you got Captain Marvel and Mr. Marvel, who is now known as just Shazam because he's DC, and you got the Marvels and uh, whatever. Let's not go there. So... Once again, I love Mobius's artwork. It's so intricate. It reminds me very much as like Katsuhiro Otomo, who is the creative genius behind Akira from Japan, both as a manga and as an anime. And so they just, they clearly love drawing these sort of technical drawings of almost like these impossible machines and, and just these amazing secret bunkers and stuff like that. It's, I just love it. I mean, don't get me wrong, they can draw characters too, but it's just the world building these two men can create. And yet, neither of them speak English. Both of them have been heavily influential to Western comic books and indeed science fiction, but their own stuff doesn't necessarily get the love. Admittedly, Akira is, is seen as an absolute classic, but it didn't do the same box office as, let's say, Thor Love and Thunder. I know which one's better. And so would you if you've actually sat down and watched Akira. Please, I encourage you. I'm pretty sure it's on Netflix at the moment. To give you an idea, today, in the 21st century, each year, the comic book value of all of these mangas in Japan is about seven to seven and a half billion dollars. And that's just the sales of comic books, basically. It is estimated that if you added up comic book sales around the rest of the world, they still wouldn't quite add up to the numbers that Japan get up to. That's how much they love their comic books there in Japan. So you can see that Stanley, in a way, got lucky. Just, just you know, very briefly, it took a while as well. The best thing that Marvel created in the 70s was the Incredible Hulk TV series, which is hokey today. I always got scared, and I know I'm not the only one, is when he, when Banner changed into the Hulk, they sort of put in these contact lenses, and he sort of, like, would sort of struggle and things like that, and it was quite a scary when you were, like, little kid. The creature is driven by rage and pursued by an investigative reporter. Mr. McGee, don't make me angry. You wouldn't like me when I'm angry. And then each week he would sort of finish his mission. He was just sort of carrying the curse of the Hulk with him. And so you get this gentle piano music as he moved on to the next city, the next town, to just stay away from the authorities. It's an incredibly sad and thoughtful TV series, which every now and then you've got somebody painted, a massive bodybuilder, dressed with Joe Frigno, if you don't know, painted in green, smashing up stuff. It, It wasn't that great. For the time, it was good, and it was hugely popular at the time, but today you realize the limitation of 70s tech. About the same time, they even created a Spider-Man TV series, which I remember seeing, and that was a huge flop, and it really, really is awful. Please, feel free to check some of that stuff out on YouTube and go, yeah, they needed to wait a while. And so, throughout the 80s, there were these terrible, cheap knock... I mean, I say knockoff, they were official Marvel movies, but they were bad, they were cheap Basically, comic book movies until 1989's Batman were neither big business nor to be taken seriously as an artistic effort. And I'm not saying that 1989's Batman got everything right, but it's so, well, for number one, it was the second biggest grossing movie of the year after Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. That got people's attention, but also we had an Oscar winning person in the movie, Jack Nicholson playing the Joker. And so you basically can start 
the the real conversation about modern comic books with Batman. Now, admittedly, in the late 1970s, there'd been the Superman movies, and they started very well, directed by Richard Donner, starring the wonderful Christopher Reeves. I'm here to fight for truth and justice in the American way. <laughs> You're going to end up fighting every elected official in this country. And numbers one and number two were good, number three was kind of goofy, and number four was cheap, nasty, and awful, and we're now back to the bad, bad comic book movies. So, yeah. It took a long time for comics to start making money, but now in the 21st century, it's basically a license to print money. Even one of the bad ones, poorly reviewed MCU movies, something like Eternals, for example, from 2021, even that's going to gross over 400 million. It didn't quite wash its face at the box office. I'm sure they've eventually made their money back, and their plan was to make more than 400 million. But for any other genre, 400 million, you people would be ecstatic about that kind of number. But it did take comics a long, hard time to get there. So while it hasn't all been a bit of roses for Marvel slash Disney, and indeed in the early, well, with Superman and then Batman 1989, along with, with some of the other Batman movies, DC was ruling the roost in the 1990s. It was only later in the 1990s that Marvel's got anywhere, not with the likes of an Iron Man or a Thor, but with Blade. Not exactly a well-remembered Marvel character, but yeah, there were three movies. Two of them were brilliant. Third one, not so much. But yeah, th so there was potential for Marvel to break through. But why not? Asterix, Valerian, the Mobius creations. And I think the answer is probably, it's because it's in a different language. Because as much as France wants to think that it's got a film industry that can stand head and shoulders with the likes of Hollywood, they don't. They can produce some marvellous movies, but they are mainly aimed at the, the, the local market. Yes, Belgium as well, bits of Switzerland, as I said, where it's French-speaking, but trying to break China with a French-language movie? Much harder. They're not used to dealing with France compared to America. And indeed, with the Japanese stuff, again, they know that they've got a built-in market. But it took till Akira coming out in the 1980s to make suddenly all this anime cool in the rest of the world. And yeah, then suddenly we got other people wanting to hear dubs or seeing with subtitles. And Demon Slayer was one of the biggest hits of 2020. Now, admittedly, that's because most of the cinemas were shut. But yeah, Demon Slayer, pretty obscure anime is suddenly world-renowned, bringing in over $100 million globally. That's a lot of money for something that wouldn't have expected to have done that, perhaps under normal circumstances. So there are these little glimmers of potential moving forwards, but the reality is America has kind of won the comic book movie war. Then internally, we can argue about DC and Marvel, I, I've had this. So basically, some of my family are diehard Marvel fans. Some of my family are diehard DC fans. I think you can like both. Um, but what I would ultimately say is this. There's no doubt that Marvel has done better more consistently. But when DC gets it right, they produce art. Think of something like The Dark Knight or The Batman or Joker. Yes, I know they're all basically the same IP in that situation. But yeah, how many Oscars have any of the actors in any of the MCU movies playing an MCU character ever won? And 
yeah, it, it's just so. Yeah, I'm DC can do very well, but sadly, we seem to like our superheroes American, or at least are coming from American production companies, and the likes of Tintin or Asterix just don't get the same kind of look in. The one last thing I will say, I mentioned the dandy beating Superman out the gates, but then in the 1970s we get 2000 AD, which produced a number of really interesting characters that some of them have been turned into movies and some of them should be turned into movies. So the most famous is Judge Dredd. Both movies about Judge Dredd are flawed in their own ways and both basically underperformed at the box office. Oops. But I would love to see, and I think there was absolutely a an, an, an market to have something like a Rogue Trooper movie or something like Strontium Dog movie or Halo Jones. There are some very cool British properties that could also get turned into something. Now, two people, Dave Gibbons and Alan Moore, created Watchmen. Both of them created stuff for 2000 AD, but both of them moved to America. And a number of people say that Watchmen is the best 2000 AD comic made by 2000 AD creatives that wasn't actually published by 2000 AD DC, in case you're wondering. So there is the potential for some very impressive British stuff. So there we go. Hope you enjoyed that. Teresa, I hope you enjoyed this one as well. And as always, another podcast coming soon. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.